listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, your host, uh, co-founder of UserWise. Um, today, I'm really excited to have Riley Anderson uh, on with me today. Um, Riley, tell us your story. How did you get into games? Thank you, Tom. Uh, and uh, thank you for having me today. I'm uh, super excited to be here as well. Um, oh, yeah. Well, how did I get into games? Uh, I think I've been a gamer my entire life. Uh, it probably started out with my father being a programmer. So I had computers before I had TVs uh, in my room when I was a kid. Uh, and at some point, I just realized... Oh, you can actually make a living of making games and having fun. Uh, and that really, uh, it was something I found uh, very interesting. Um, I think the moment I knew uh, this was the industry I had to be in was the first time I exhibited one of my games uh, at the Danish like science ministry and having people playing it and actually fighting over the device of who could play it uh, <laughs> just made me feel like this is like, yeah, bringing entertainment is something I'm very, very um, excited about. And also the fact that you can combine it, lead in the commercial side with um, like business models and marketing, uh, which is stuff I also uh, enjoy a lot. Um, yeah. Definitely yeah. my interest within gaming. Yeah. <laughs> so are you a programmer at all yourself? Did your dad teach you stuff or trained or... I can do basic programming. I also had some classes in school. Uh, it's not really my f my most favorite thing, I think, because you have to think so logically about things. <laughs> I'm more like a out-of-the-box kind of thinker. Uh, yeah. uh, so in that way, it doesn't really fit my personality. But I think it's, uh, it's super important that if you want to, uh, like I do have a company and be uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, a bit of a project leader as well you need to know the area as well and understand what programming is about and how to think about it um yeah absolutely yeah i know uh i i taught myself how to code and, and built uh some of my uh, original companies uh core base of everything so you know, I, I would say, you know, if I was playing League of Legends, they've got, you know, different tiers. I'm maybe like a high silver, you know, low gold tier, you know, programmer. Um, you know, now now we fill the team with the, the challenger level developers. So I'm nowhere near that, but I at least like understand the, the concepts and the premises. And, you know, I could probably get there if I just brute force it, not nearly as fast or as elegant as them, but uh, I at least know high level. If I'm going to ask you to do something, Oh, that task is going to take five minutes versus that's probably going to take like a month. Um, and so I think that really helps with, you know, how you think about things and like designing games and configurations and different things like that. So um, definitely love that. So yeah, I'm on the same level. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember like I was feeling pretty good at League of Legends and then, you know, Twitch came out and I watched some other people play and it just... <laughs> <laughs> hit me. I'm probably never going to be the best, but, uh, you know, find enjoyment where you can. Um, yeah. So you started at tactile in games, right? Um, kind of doing social media stuff, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Like what does a, a social media manager do and, um, like, what did you learn from there and how has that influenced what you do today in terms of like being able to connect with an audience? Yes, that's true. I started my career at Tactile Games in Denmark, uh, who make free-to-play uh, casual games. 
for me, that has been super important for my journey uh, of where I am today. Um, I already started working at Tactile while I was still studying. I studied um, mm-hmm. game design and I specialized within social media. Um, so what I started uh, in the beginning by doing at uh, Tactile was concept development of the social media strategy. Uh, it was very much on the organic side. so very different than what I do today, where it's more on the paid side. Um, yeah. But it was super insightful. It was a lot about getting to know the target audience. Uh, in these classic, uh, classic match free games, it's uh, women plus uh, 35. Uh, hmm. And I learned a lot by studying them. I also combined the, uh, the work I did at Tactile with a lot of statistics. Uh, and with my uh, thesis at school as well. So I tried figuring out how you could actually use statistics and data to measure on the organic side of um, mm. um, of uh, yeah, content creation and marketing. Um, <laughs> but that was super interesting. I think for me, also just being part of Tactile and seeing that growth. When we started, we were around 15 people. And I think today there are 200 people. Uh, so for me, that was really the place where I learned a lot about uh, all the different aspects of game development and getting a it's called like a professional view on things instead of just doing school projects. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to be said of like actually working at a company. I've heard uh, you know some people talk about there's a lot of value of you know first working there before you go out to start your own company. Um, so I have been fascinated with the idea of, you know, what comes after paid marketing or what can we do, you know, tangentially to that? Because I feel like markets just keep getting more and more competitive. And no matter how low your CPI is when you start, it always seems to kind of gradually go up as you, you know, grow out your audience and stuff. But like, do you think there are opportunities for maybe certain genres to be able to do some sort of content type marketing and really like connecting with your audience and bringing them in a little bit more organically than just, you know, from the paid perspective? I think at least something we noticed with ABC Runner, uh, our latest hyper-casual games, uh, which made it that very big, we have more than 5 million downloads now, is that if you cater, if your game kind of caters to involving someone else in the the answers, uh, that was like a questionnaire game and... um, that definitely helps. Uh, what we did at Tactile was more like the classic uh, match-free games. It had a lot of social features, uh, and I've seen that in other similar games as well. Not that much in hyper-casual, but let's say you have to uh, connect with Facebook to one save your progress, but also to uh, give life to each other, uh, and you need lives to play more levels. Um, so I definitely think there's already something out there, but also I think one could leverage on it even more. Uh, I feel like the next couple of years will be super interesting because we have a lot of uh, studios like us that knows everything about hypercasual and have been studying this for years and really using like all the time you have where you're awake on just game development and knowing everything about the market. And yeah. I think that type of knowledge will over the next couple of years be combined with the more classical could be match free merge. We see a lot of these different genres uh, out there. We also had the June's journey with the hidden objects, like combining some of the more classic retention genres with all the hyper casual knowledge. I think that would be very interesting to see how well people will uh, use that to their advantage when 
as you say, coming up with new marketing strategies and combining them with like specific target target audiences? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's cool. So after Tactile, you went on to found Tap House, and then you know that led to Umami. Like, what, what what's the story there? So I think as a person, I've been wanting to actually start my own company since I was a kid. I always knew that was uh, the path I would go in. Uh, just didn't know exactly in what area. Um, so after being a tactile for some while, uh, in the beginning, I thought I wanted to become a producer. Uh, then found out uh, that maybe that was not even enough for me. <laughs> kind of wanted even more, right? Uh, and then I thought the only way to really learn is to start doing it instead of fearing what then if I don't have the perfect team to begin with or all those stuff. So I um, I gathered a team, uh, a programmer and an artist. Uh, it was someone already new from the industry and used to work with in high school, which is a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> We started out and the way I see it today is uh, kind of have you have an internship. <laughs> this was my internship into uh, the startup scene and actually having a company and being a business owner, uh, also a game studio. So we just tried out a lot of different things. I think I needed that as a person, trying uh, to apply for money through soft funds, for example, and also going to venture capitalists way too early <laughs> and uh, trying out a lot of different visions as well, like scoping up and down. And for me, I'm that type of person. I just learned best by doing. So those 10 months where I uh, uh, was part of Tap House Studio and founded it uh, together with two others, um, gave me so many learnings and also knew in the end exactly what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, the team and I didn't want to, didn't want to do the same things. I think I wanted another like speed of things. And for me, yeah. hyper special was just, I just saw the light. That was the, the best way for me to go into the industry and to, to learn and to develop games. If you're that type of person that get like 10 different crazy game ideas per day, hyper casual <laughs> just fits you perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, it was something that I needed to do for myself to, to be where I am today. Um, I don't look back at it with regret. I look back at it with uh, yeah, like positive thoughts and all the stuff I learned from it. Uh, but it wasn't the right team and it wasn't uh, the right vision. We were simply too young, to be honest, uh, not yeah. knowing what we wanted to do. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about that, it kind of wasn't the right team. Um, do you think for other people that are, you know, in the stage of thinking of starting a company, um, you know, what size does your team need to be? So you, I think you said you were three. So, you know, you've kind of got the CEO fundraising slash game design stuff. Then you've got a programmer and an artist. Like, is that like the minimum team that you kind of need to be able to create hyper casual games or, you know, what is the, Yeah. I would actually say in hyper casual, one person is enough <laughs> as long as you can code. <laughs> uh, <laughs> however, I think for us, the new team with Umami Games we started, there was two programmers and then me. Because uh, I don't think an artist is, uh, it's not necessarily uh, necessary. <laughs> it's like double necessary. Uh, to, to actually succeed within hyper casual. Um, maybe sometimes it's actually better not to have it way too polished because maybe it's more relatable if it's less polished. Uh, at least from our perspective, uh, it's not something that uh, we have needed and it's not really a specific role we're looking for. We more look for generalists. So the programmers on my team uh, kind of have a split palette, 
maybe they wouldn't be able to code the craziest algorithm that could save the world, but but they're super good at object-oriented uh, programming. That's what mm-hmm. you do in uh, game development, but also have some knowledge within 3D and within um, like uh, 2D as well. Uh, so I think uh, like a wide palette is more important. Uh, mm. What I kind of feel like the takeaways we got and I got from the first companies, it's more about the passion. Like, do you want to do, do you, do you have the same vision for where you want the company to go in? And do you have the same sort of passion? Which for me also kind of equals how much do you want to work? I'm like a workaholic. I work all the time. Uh, and for me, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't work to have co-founders that only want to work part-time, for example. That's something I decided with myself very early that like I'm going to go all in uh, and I want people on my team that also want to go all in um, lead at this stage. Uh, so I think like finding the right people and also being able to evaluate on the same level, like I kind of say things as I see them without being mean or anything, but uh, some people don't work so well with feedback that are, I wouldn't say harsh, but on point, right? Um there's different points you need to think about when starting a team, like the cultural fit as well, right? Um, yeah. No, I think one thing that um, is really interesting that I've found too is like making sure that you guys are aligned in terms of what is your exit strategy too? Like, what do you what do you actually want out of this? Because um, you know, I've heard of scenarios where you've got like a three person founding team. One person wants to do like an acquisition. One person wants to, you know, cash flow the business. One person wants something else. And then, you know, come time that you guys are actually successful and you're at the point where you should be celebrating. Now everyone kind of wants to go this different exit strategy and you kind of clash heads. And I've actually seen that take down a business. So like just making sure you guys are aligned culturally in terms of just like everything. It's, it's kind of like getting married in some ways. Maybe even more so. It's like, you know, make sure you you know those like deep things about, you know, your uh, potential co-founders, uh, spiritual and religion beliefs and you know, all, all that kind of stuff. This may be hard conversations, but good to have <laughs> before you're already in it. Definitely. That's also something kind of noticed with the, as you say, with the first company, like, I don't know why either I kind of feared taking, um, bringing up some of the difficult topics, right? Exactly as you say, like, what do we want to do in three years? What do we want to do in a year? How do we think about this and this? And uh, that's definitely an advice to others. Like, uh, let's take it up front instead of waiting. <laughs> it will just be a bigger problem later, right? Uh, and I definitely agree. Some of the takeaways I've all also taken uh, with me to Umami Games. Uh, we just made our first, like, three-year plan. So we kind of know almost like by each quarter where we will be, at least where we want to be, right? Uh, Which also helps with what you say, like, what is our strategy? Uh, Because that's something you can really disagree on and can, uh, yeah, Yeah. make it very difficult to to continue working together, right? Uh, Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about hyper casual because... You know, it, it seems like hyper casual came out. People kind of underwrote it. It's like, oh, that's just going to be a little fad. And it just keeps growing. Um, so what is a hyper casual game? I would say a hyper casual game is short and sweet. It's this small uh, level bursts. Uh, it's also a game that's super relatable normally. Uh, whenever you see 
either the game or an ad, you will be able to tell within two or three seconds, what is this game about? What is the objective? And what is kind of expected of me? Uh, so I would say uh, what kind of, what hypercasual offers the other, other game experiences don't is a little bit a better intro in a way. If you haven't played that many games before, hypercasual is a great way to start. Uh, it's also games you can enjoy while you're doing other things could be commuting to work. It could also be, I think the new generation, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of part of it. They do more than one thing at once. Uh, I'm 30, so I'm not that uh, <laughs> that young. Uh, but, but I kind of do it myself. I watch TV and also play a game and I talk to someone at the same time. And I think people nowadays just like doing more than one thing at a time. Sometimes to explain it easier to people, also call it like, playful interactive entertainment more than necessarily a game ride uh, yeah that's great okay so switching topics just slightly i over and over and over again hear people talking about the importance of designing a game for your target audience like knowing them inside and out so that you can really meet them at the best possible moment so that your game can actually fit into their lives and kind of become a core part of it. Um, is that mantra true for hyper-casual games? And like, who is the audience for hyper-casual games? It's hard to say, right? Because I guess like the point with hyper-casual is that it is for the wide audiences, that there is not a specific target audience, it's everybody. Uh, and then you can say, oh, but what does everybody then have in common, maybe? I mean, uh, that there are stuff that we all have in common, no matter where we live and how old we are, right? Uh, sleep could be a great example. We all need to sleep to exist. We all need to eat to exist. Uh, many of us also experience love of some sort in our lives, right? Uh, there are some universal things that we can all relate to. Um, and also, I guess, uh, hypercasual also fo follows in general, like popular trends. Um, so, so again, it is something we can all relate, but it is hard. I would still say we sometimes try to work with like target audiences within hypercasual. Maybe you can say like, I'm all thinking of it as personas than a specific target audience, like, uh, like the broad like the generalist opinion of like, how, how does a woman in general think, for example, that could be a, a target audience within hypercasual. How does a male think, or maybe how does a person uh, who's uh, younger than 30 think? And then maybe, even though they're maybe like the main target audience, your game still has to be appealing for everyone else. But I, I do think you can think of a, like an area we also, that's something I also learned through like this a life of design that sometimes you're like, um, I don't want to design anything specific because that way uh, it, uh, I will, some people will not relate to it, right? But from my experience and theory also says it's actually better to design something specific because uh, then it's easier for people to relate into it, even though it doesn't look like the, the car that they have in America but more looks like a European car. Yeah. We still recognize it as a car. Um, but I wouldn't in hypercasual go out and say like, okay, I'm going to design this game for 12-year-old boys. That, that would <laughs> be <more. laughs> 
So, so how would I approach like, so, so pitch me like a game concept. It, it can be something new or it can be something that you, you know, tested before and it failed, but you know, like how would I come up with a game concept, you know, with that in mind? You have different kind of design strategies, right? Now we just had a talk at the company about uh, turning more professional. So I have to learn not to say anything about our new ideas because <laughs> we're so excited about, right? Uh, but we could take a, I feel like we, we made one, uh, a game once called Match Me If You Can. So first of all, catchy name from my uh, age group, uh, Catch Me If You Can is a very famous movie. Uh, no, Match Me If You Can kind of resembles that. The idea here was the theme of love, Valentine's, uh, where we were thinking that's something that a lot of people can relate to, right? Uh, if I should design it today, I would think, so who, who really cares about Valentine's Day? Is it men or females? Maybe without being uh, gender biased or anything, maybe females in general care a little bit more about uh, <laughs> Valentine's. Uh, so, so there you would say, okay, have a theme, also have a, an expected preferred audience that would like love it even more than the rest right uh, and then you come up with a mechanic uh, so what we did back then was not really thinking too much about the target audience just saying okay love is cool what is the most significant thing about love we think cupid is something everyone it's a story everyone heard uh, like you shoot someone and they fall in love with someone else uh, so we used that concept to create this little uh, puzzle game where you had to uh, to first shoot a, a boy and a girl, and then they fell in love. Um, super cool. The only Then we tested it, CPI was super bad. <laughs> and we were like, oh, <laughs> how come, right? And then we actually thought about the analysis of, okay, so this is a very female-oriented theme with Valentine's, with love, with the whole, ooh, so cute, right? That one will fall in love with that one, ooh. But then you have a, a shooting mechanic which is, an, and also a little bit of a struggle puzzle mechanic, which is in general, maybe more male-oriented. At least I know for myself, I can use myself as a as a woman, as a <laughs> example here. I don't really like puzzles where it gets too hard and I have to use too much time on thinking of that. It's just too difficult, right? Uh, and the whole shooting thing is maybe not so relatable. So today I would rather say, uh, like Rolik, I think they just did very well with a few of these very like uh, girly games. Uh, it's one called Bounce Big and one called High Heels. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very stereotypical female-oriented themes, right? I could kind of think of the same, right? Uh, oh, so if I take this group of totally female kind of friendly, that are a little bit, I wouldn't say <laughs> bitchy, but a little this whole queen kind of vibe yeah. that's going on on TikTok. What else? Is, is there something relatable that haven't been tacked into that scene yet, right? That's kind of normally how I approach it. Uh, I have some ideas, but I promise not to say <laughs> when we haven't tested them yet. Yeah. But you can also, kind of what we did with ABC Runner, was like combining something old and nostalgic. What if you played like a super cool Nintendo 64 game, for example, and it has this really cool mechanic and you're like, ah, could we make this into something more relatable? Um, so, so that's also a thing. Uh, okay, that's cool. So let's say you come up with this match me if you can idea, and let's assume that it, it worked for whatever reason. But um, is that something that I should just go and build? Or is there some level of 
you know, there's a lot of other games out there. Like, do I need to do some sort of like research to see like, is there a, a competitor app that already has this out there that's dominating the market? And, you know, is there something I should do before building a game, like a CPI test or something like that? You know, what are the right steps in terms of, you know, taking that idea and turning it into a reality? Yeah, I would definitely in hyper-casual test as early as possible. Uh, so I think a great structure is, of course, coming up with your ideas. Also already when you come up with the idea, have an idea of how big, how big is the scope of this prototype? We always talk in weeks. Uh, some people even talk in days, right? Is this a one-week prototype? Is it a three-day prototype? Is it a two-week prototype? And then you prioritize which of the design choices you actually implement in the prototype. Uh, we have to think about we're not building games to begin with. We're building prototypes. Uh, so we want to convey the game mechanic in itself. We want to convey the objective. And we want to convey the setting and the context we kind of want people to tap into. Uh, I would say those are the three most important things. I would never use more than two weeks on a prototype before testing. That's simply just too risky. By experience, you don't know whether uh, you've tapped correctly into the market or whether it's just interesting enough. One thing is that you like it, maybe your friends, your family, whatever likes it, but does the wide audience really like it? You have to test that super early. Uh, I wouldn't, of course you want to maybe look a little bit at what, what are other people making. You don't want to make a one-to-one -one copy of anything, uh, but I wouldn't use too much time on, on researching after I came up with the idea. At least that, that's not something we normally do. When that said, we just had a funny situation with uh, another publisher where we were like, we saw someone who just made a copy of exactly the game we made. And we're like, what the hell? This is such a unique idea. This cannot be true. Uh, and before we actually managed to write them, they wrote us and said that we copied that game. We was <laughs> like, <laughs> that cannot be true. And we have dates and stuff on when we put the games out. So uh, it's not really a thing there, but... Like, but in a situation like that, who has the right to make the game? If it's literally two people coming up with, we, we all look at the same ideas and inspiration. So I think it's pr pretty possible that different developers will come up with the same idea and, and execute a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And who has the right to that? In the end, it must be the one that just executes its best right. Uh, yeah. That will win the market. The, the, the players will decide that. Um that's great. I like that. Um, one thing that you said that was interesting to me is that having an artist maybe isn't that important towards uh, just making the hyper casual game. Um, but thinking about that in terms of CPI and ads and stuff, I do feel like, you know, a good art is never going to save retention in the game, right? Never. Um, but I do feel like good art can attract people into a game because it looks so beautiful and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you balance that art scenario with like your CPI and your ads and stuff that you run on Facebook or what have you? I think maybe also because I actually come from tactile. When we when we are speaking about artists, maybe I think more like of a classical artist uh, <laughs> that does either 2D art or 3D models, uh, where those you can kind of get on the Unity Asset Store. I think a technical art, artist, someone who's really good at shaders, particles, and that's always important uh, for a team because, uh, as you say, it kind of enhances the game feeling you are trying to 
convey to the to the players. Um, but what we have just uh, in, we've just improved our own technical articles. It's a little bit back to being a generalist in hyper casual. You have to be able to do all roles yourselves. Uh, so of course that is important. Um, I do think after testing for two three years that the mechanic is really what will tell whether this is a great game or not, and the CPI uh, in the end as well. Um, maybe on retention side, you can. I, I don't think it can save it. Maybe it can matter if it feels more nice to play, right? Uh, I think we're pretty good at that without being artists, like the game feel, um, which will always be a combination of everything, right? How is the input output? How is the particles, the effects, the shaders uh, conveying to the scene and uh, everything like that? Yeah. Um, very interesting. Um, okay. Thinking I think about have another theory about the art thing. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Let's hear so, it. It's just because we talked about a lot about this lately, right? And I have this theory that if also if if you make your game way too nice looking, like let's say it's almost the 3D standard of those uh, story-driven uh, match-free merch games, right? Mm -hmm. Then I kind of also maybe have a theory that when people see those ads, they also know, oh, this is the kind of experience that takes at least. 20 or 30 minutes, that this is the kind of experience that they will demand this much from me. Um, whereas when you see a hyper casual game, you kind of already know, ah, this is one of these small, funny, haha ones. So, so I can also have a theory that you will maybe also get higher CPIs if it's way too beautiful. Because uh, it will then <laughs> look like something it's not, right? It will mm. look like a casual uh, match free game or something like that when it's really like a this short sweet experience um yeah. it's just a theory <laughs> very cool um thinking about cpis again mm -hmm. so i hear a lot of you know metrics around like retention is the most important thing or your arp dow or whatnot um would you say that CPI is the most important metric when it comes to hypercasual? Yes, <laughs> to begin with at least, right? It, I mean, it is a synergy. Uh, you can have, I guess, or maybe not five cents, but even if I have 15 cents CPI, if my game only makes 10, doesn't really matter, right? Uh, so, so it will also be, always be a synergy of knowing your lifetime value model, like knowing the different metrics that you put in. Um, I think why why people say that in hypercasual because you you have very few revenue streams in hypercasual. You mainly have the ads, a few in-app purchases, but that's mainly just to remove the ads, right? So if I, I if I get someone to actually do an in-app purchase, that's kind of a limit of what will I then make uh, anyway, <laughs> right? And um, so, so I think that's why people say that CPI is the most important thing, because if CPI is a dollar, then in hyper-casual, it's just not possible to make money yeah. on that. Uh, so that's why you need to test that so early. Uh, then maybe when you're testing, you figure out, if retention is crazy, we tried that as well, uh, where we have really good retention and play times, but CPI is not as we wanted, then maybe is it still a hyper-casual game? From our perspective, that was actually an, an idle hyper-casual, which was then maybe more into the idle side. Uh, and there, you, you need to have another UA strategy. You cannot use the same broad marketing, uh, at least not with the CPI we had there, right? Um, so yeah, I think it is super important. When that's it, 
when when you then you do with as we talked about before you do the early testing let's say i test after a week i find out okay here's very nice cpi metrics then i need to go and look at my retention and then my retention becomes the most important metric right to kind of nail uh, um when that's it what if i actually get my retention up to 45 percent day one let's say 15 percent uh, day seven it's actually pretty crazy metrics right but my um, but my cpi just skyrockets it goes from 20 cents to two dollars then it doesn't really matter anymore right so yeah i would say cpi is the most important factor in hyper casual that's great yeah um I, I hear a lot of people starting to focus a little bit more on cpi in the sense of like what is your uh time to recoup in terms of uh you know, LTV and things like that, even outside of hyper casual, because the faster that you can make the UA cost and get into profit, the more that you have to reinvest and actually ultimately scale out your game too. Um, so I, definitely interesting stuff there. Um, yeah, that's also you know, why the out is important, right? In the, and, and the, how to get your money out from the, uh, from from the mediation side, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, how as you say, how fast can I reinvest my money? <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about you know getting into the next stage, let's say I have a reasonable CPI. Um, how do you think about monetizing your game? I mean, obviously there's ads and stuff, but like, is there a certain cadence in terms of how you're testing it and how many ads you're showing to users? Do you try to balance stuff, or is it really just all about hitting a certain LTV metric so that you have a certain margin that matches what a publisher is looking for. We'd kind of do a mix. So we always try to follow the market, like the frequency of how often do others uh, show show ads. Uh, we sometimes also talk about these games like, oh, they're struggling on retention, huh? Because they like when you played one minute of the game, you've been offered five uh, one-time offers, and you've seen two ads, and like I've even watched more ads than I played, right? And we sometimes just laugh and say, oh, <laughs> struggling with retention. <laughs> That's why they need so many ads so fast, right? Uh, um, with that said, we kind of think about there's a frequency of the interstitials. So the ads you show without people actually wanting them to see them, right? Um, when that's, I also think it's more acceptable and hyper casual because these type of people are more used to having free content and free content means free for ads, ads yeah. right? Um, yeah. The rewarded ads, now one of like uh, my passions also when, uh, <laughs> when studying and stuff and still is like the monetization design. I think that's super important. Uh, so, so we we kind of look at the rewarded ads as well. Uh, I can use the ABC runner for example. Um, mm -hmm. What we did there, we went in a go and measured each level, so you can see the exact win and fail rate for each level. Um, then we made it into this clash royale structure, which means you have to win all ten levels to actually win a tournament. Uh, there's ten rounds in a tournament. Why is that a good idea? One thing for playtime, but also for the monetization. Because the likelihood of someone, and I have data to prove this, <laughs> the, the likelihood of someone actually using us like a skip the gate or watching an ad to get a reward to pass a level is higher the closer you get to the goal. Like if, I'm, if there's 10 rounds and I have to start over, if I lose on level two, I will lose. It's like it's basic uh, psychology of uh, like negotiating, right? Uh, yeah. 
different tasks you do as well. Of like how 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 far up do I need to go in the risk thing to actually be willing to uh, to to watch the ad? And and you can measure yeah. that. That's what I love about hypercase, like just like the development <laughs> in general, right? That you can measure on everything. And you can see exactly. Oh, so this is where I should either put a hard level or an extra ad. Normally, it's a combination, right, of a harder level between yeah. two easy ones. So they were like, yeah. So you kind of. Um, to cater them to, to press the ads at different times, right? Uh, this is a very normal strategy, I think. Are they called Future Play in Finland? Well, some of the ones I think are super cool. Back in the days, they made this idle game. Back in the days, like four or five years ago, right? <laughs> but they made this idle game where they had the sun and they also had a cloud, which was intertwined in the game core loop, which was a harvesting. And it just fitted so perfectly. Everyone, you, you want to press the sun because you need extra sun on your seats to make them grow faster, right? Uh, and I think that's why you really nail it if you kind of get the rewarded at somehow inside of the core loop. Uh, also seen Relic doing some nice tricks in runners where they give the new skin. You, you only played half a level and you get the, the skin uh, and you get to play with a half a level. You get to get used to, oh, I really like this new hat I got for my character, yeah. right? Then it turns out it was not for free. I need to watch an ad to get the hat. <laughs> I already got used to the hat, right? Uh, yep. A lot of psychology mixed with like sales, I guess, and technology and data. And yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that idea of ownership of, oh, I have this now. Oh, yeah. now I have to give it back. You're much yeah. more likely to, to go through with it. Uh, it's actually something I've seen like uh, Playrix do in a lot of their live ops. So, um, they design in homescapes, their weekend events are much more intensive where you do have to win those like 10 levels in a row and monetization goes up because now that you've invested all this time getting to level nine, again, maybe after you already failed and restarted, oh, I'm just going to pay, you know, for the extra five moves to like finish this to make sure that I secure my reward because I don't want to start back at level one. Um, I think it's just super interesting. That whole spectrum of like, oh, so you can do, you can make like very small changes and you can just see very big differences in the data. And uh, yeah, I think it's super interesting, uh, that whole field. Yeah. Actually, speaking of live ops, what do you think about the idea of live ops and hyper casual? Because I've heard a lot of like hyper casual publishers like really getting interested in the concepts of it. But like, do you think they can be done? And, and what would that look like? I've definitely seen more of it, actually, to be honest. And since it's proven and works in casual, I would say, yes, I think it can work in hyper-casual as well. It's probably about finding the hyper-casual version of the same features as you have in casual free-to-play. Um, I've heard, it also depends a little bit on, on the games, right? But for some of them, it could work very well. Uh, we also talked about it in our game, ABC Runner, having this whole, like, uh, how about like a, a weekend tournament that you say, where you get in and okay, now the 100, you're like in a, we had that a tactile as well, like you have to start tournaments, for example, 100 players in, the best three ones will get rewards, right? We are competing in 48 hours or something. I think the biggest struggle is what, what we kind of entered was the server. You have to pay for each uh server space you use so if you if you want like real-time multiplayer uh <laughs> can be a bit uh cost like the cost per user is too high for it yep. to make sense in hyper cash and that's where the the issue is right so i don't think it's because the players wouldn't like it it's more like a financial thing and once 
you probably break that curve of some sort. I think we will see way more in, uh, of it in hypercasual in general. Yeah. No, it was interesting. I was talking to one hypercasual publisher. They were kind of uh, curious if they could use uh, user-wise our live ops tools for stuff. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems that I see with a lot of hypercasual games is, well, I could give you the framework to run live ops events in there really easily. But if you don't have something valuable to the players that they actually want, like, no. like why would I do that weekend event if I don't care about those rewards for the top three spots, right? Um, so that's where sometimes those casual games have like, you know, I really want that booster because I know what the value of it is to me where some hyper casual games don't have that. Uh, but on the flip side, um, I was talking to them in the, uh, as an example of a hyper casual game, like a, a bottle flipper game where like you tap once and the bottle flips, you can tap again and it'll, you know, you have to land on something and kind of trends across the room. And I said, well, you know, your top players are playing like 400 levels of this and watching like 400 ads, right? Um, mm -hmm. Well, why should it be 400? Like, what if we could get them to 1200? And it seems like they just genuinely really like the, the game mechanic and stuff, right? So, you know, we could make a live op event where every week you can push out the asset of something new. So, you know, this weekend it's the vacuum event where you're flipping a vacuum cleaner across the room and you know we could allow you to change how fast it goes up and how fast it goes over and now it's like almost this completely different gameplay but mm. it's it's like more of the same but different um and so being able to you know really expound on that and now every week it's like a, a new game to me and, and for the players that actually really loved that mechanic they get to go through that whole mastery stage again which is really exciting um, and you can throw, yeah. I had that fear before because someone, I think it was when we were in Japan doing the uh, venture capital tour, they were also saying, uh, but how come, as you say, if CPI is the most important metric, how come you want to keep on buying new users? Why not just buy them once and keep entertaining them, kind of as, as you're saying as well, right? Uh, instead of making 10 different games where one is the bottle, one is the vacuum, one is the blah, 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 right? Uh, why not having just one game? I keep refreshing it, as you say. Uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, it's definitely something one could test on. It could be the issue of your ECPM being really low, though. Uh, is from my understanding that, like, the, the more of the same, like, the newer your game is, the more yeah, interesting it is, of course, right? Uh. With, yeah. Easy values, uh, but I do think as a developer and <laughs> marketing person, it's super interesting because uh, <laughs> if I could make double the amount of money, <laughs> but only have to pay to actually get them in their one tribe, uh, it'd be super interesting. Um, yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just kind of curious. Like, I see a lot of hyper casual games that shoot to the top of the charts. And then yeah. they shoot back down just as quickly. And, you know, are there some ways that, you know, once you shoot to the top, you start getting a lot of organic traffic and things too from people finding you. And so like, you know, could there be some level of live ops mechanics or other things like that where you can kind of, you know, keep that level because then you're just going to command all that organic traffic. And are you going to start to see, you know, if you look at like the top grossing charts, the ones that are new <laughs> that maintain like the top 100 is maybe like, you know, one or two games from the last year. Everything else is just like pre-existing and they just 
dominate those charts? And is that going to happen hyper-casual too? I don't necessarily think it completely will just because hyper-casual games by nature are those kind of like short, shorter type things. But, you know, maybe instead of only being at the top for a few days or weeks, it can be like a month or two. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I agree. And also depends on your repertoire. Because I don't know whether, whether like we also talked about that, that came these completion games. But how about also having one could also have one game with all the games in it, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. the issue in hyper casual is that after a while, people kind of get tired of it because of exactly what you say. There's no um, there's no hard currency, so there's no real value after a week except of the mechanic being super fun, right? Uh, so there's not that much meta layer that kind of keeps me playing. Like when I uh, I'm super excited about the Switch, the new Pokemon Snap coming out. Because I yeah. really love predicting them. There's 100 Pokemon. It's la. Where in hypercasual, you don't have that second layer, which is kind of the essence of what hypercasual is. So I don't think it's because you need that layer, but it's still maybe some people at some point kind of want a bit more of that layer. Um, <laughs> that is a bit difficult, like containing people. But if life apps could kind of create that layer of why do I want to return? Uh, yeah. I think it maybe it's. One would have to think hyper-casual a little different, but still take a lot of hyper-casual stuff to really make life ops fit. But if yeah. one could be the first one that really nailed life ops and hyper-casual, you would have a crazy unfair advantage uh, in the market, right? Yeah, so, uh, or, or become like a, a Roblox of like hyper-casual games. So now you just have all of them within there and maybe you could have a hard currency that you can use across any of the games. So if I want to get, you know, a hat over here or you know something over here i'm not tied to the one game yeah. uh, i saw popco actually doing a little bit of that i'm pretty sure it was them who made with all of the games also looks pretty similar these wide minimalistic kind of puzzle games uh but they did do a shared meta layer you could build between all of where you got soft currency in one game that you could use in another as well uh i haven't seen others doing it though um sorry wow Love it. Airplanes? Uh, cars. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit. I know we're almost out of time here, but um, building a team, um, what does that mean to you? And how, how would I go about finding the right people to build the team? Because I, I realized that, you know, the finding the right people allows me to really, that's how things get done, right? find the right people and they can do amazing things once they're empowered with the right tools and resources. Well, I guess I'm a, we are a little bit new in building a team. I know a lot about building founder teams, uh, but, but then actually scaling a team. Uh, so what we did, uh, what I did is uh, first start by asking people who know more about you, about it, uh, like uh, getting some information for pe from people who already built a team. Um, then for us, like a combination of like the cultural fit, but also the, what kind of skills do I need right now for my company? What are the goals we have set and how do we get there? Uh, for us, for example, we needed a lot of programmers because we want to make a lot of different prototypes because we believe mm -hmm. capacity is super important to win the hyper-casual market. Um, uh, and then, I mean, interviewing people, figuring out, make, we made them make a little test so we were like specifically, if we take programmers as an example, uh, 
looking for them than um, making them do like a small test or something that resembles the work they will actually do at our place. Then we also talk to different references that knew them, like older teachers, uh, former employees. Uh, then we've had, yeah, like a personal talk with them as well. Uh, and you start out a little bit like with a three-month trial period where uh, from both sides, if it turns out not to be a fit, uh, you can end the collab, uh, yeah, the employment uh, um but it, I guess it's always hard to say from my experience so far and what I heard from people like really also have to follow like your stomach feeling. Uh, if, if at the first meeting you have a sense of this person won't really culturally fit into the company, from my experience, the likelihood of you taking three more conversation and fitting better in is, is yeah, not really. <laughs> going yeah. To uh, yeah. That's great. Cool. Well, since this is the Mastering Retention Podcast, I always like to ask, what is one tip or trick you've found over the years for helping to increase player retention? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, value, I think, is pretty important, as you kind of said. Uh, trying to figure out, as you say, even though it's hyper, like, what is the target? What is it that they value the most inside of the game? Kind of give them more of that <laughs> uh, I think is, is one good tip another good tip which is super simple but maybe some, some people forget like look at what others are doing uh, I think that's something we're really good at as well uh, if I'm making an idle game I will look at the five top idle games I think are the best ones I can see maybe on on a list are the ones that grosses the most play them through, make a little analyze. What, what is it that they all have in common? What is it that they do that are super, uh, that seems like, ah, this makes the like the experience way sweeter and just conveys everything, like the flow is better, right? Yeah. And then try to add that into your game. So not, not necessarily as a one-to-one -one copy, but like thinking of what is the flow they created? What did that do for the player? I've been playing a lot of these match-free, story-driven games lately, and <laughs> they're good at retention. I think maybe you even wrote it as well on LinkedIn. There's uh, this royal match and each time you play like you lose by having uh, It's like I lose and I have my like power up thing. It's like well I want to use that. I spent the whole time trying to get the stupid power up and yeah. <laughs> so yeah I pay my 900 coins so I can blow it all up. Exactly yeah and and, and also see what they did there. They, they got you used to actually using the coins which is what they did at Heyday and all of those classic games as well. They get you to use the soft currency and the hard currency before, where it's, while it's still free, so you're used to it. Um, so, so we'll later, uh, then where you actually need it, you're already used to it. Like, this is the way I solve this issue, right? Of not having moves enough. It's by using my coins. But at some point you need to buy, like use real money to get more coins. And I think it's very, very clever design. Uh, so we'll definitely look at what others are doing and see what of what what of their design traits could I use to my own advantage. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Riley, this has been so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you. I hope so too. And thank you for having me. <laughs>